Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Jennifer Kalt, Director of Humboldt Baykeeper. The Eco News Report is brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, Eco News. Today, my guest is Mike Wilson, Humboldt County Supervisor for the 3rd District, here to talk about some major decisions that have been made recently about the future of Humboldt County. Thanks so much for being on the Eco News Report today, Mike. Thanks for having me, Jen. It's always good to be here. So before we get into this discussion, I want to make an announcement that tonight the HSU Natural History Museum is having a free lecture on tree rings and redwoods by a research associate here on campus named Allison Carroll at 7 o'clock, and it's about the network that Allison recently created of cross-dated tree ring chronologies for Coast Redwoods, which opens up lots of new investigations as far as climatology and fire history. Basically because, you know, redwoods are so long-lived, you cut a slice of a, of a dead redwood tree, sand it down, look it under the microscope, and you can see when floods, fires, or major droughts, or major rain events happen. So it's really fascinating stuff. And that is at the HSU Natural History Museum at 1242 G Street in Arcata tonight from 7 to 8.15 p.m. That sounds like fun. Mike, so what we're here to talk about in large part is that the Humboldt County General Plan update was finally adopted recently after nearly 18 years in the making. This was your first time voting on the general plan update. Is that right? Yeah. It took everyone else 18 years and only one meeting for me. So. <laughs> You're lucky. Success. <laughs> they should have had me there all along. <clears throat> or maybe not. <laughs> maybe they've taken 28 years. <laughs> Well, just a really brief recap for people who are not clued into what the county general plan update is. In every county and city in California, the general plan update is what guides development for the future, generally 20 years. And so, yes, Humboldt County spent 18 years developing a plan for the next 20 years. That's right. I really did just say that. Unfortunately for me, I spent way more of my life on that plan than I care to even think about. But for those of you who've been around for a while, lots of you came to many planning commission hearings, wrote emails, letters, called your supervisors, etc. What happened was in 2012, we had a really good general plan update recommended by the planning commission at the time. And then we had a wholesale turnover of most of the board of supervisors who felt that they had a mandate to really change the general plan update dramatically and move away from what we we would call smart growth or, you know, increasing development for housing in existing communities where, you know, you would then on the flip side be doing a better job of protecting open space like timberlands and farmlands and keeping those in what we call resource production. And I first got interested in this because I had come here in the early 90s from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, which has amazing open space districts all over over every county in in San Francisco Bay Area has an amazing open space district. And I wanted to know how could we have that here? And then I started to realize, well, the flip side of that is you need more housing in town so that people drive less and so that the open space stays open and that sort of thing. So tell us what happened, Mike. (laughs) How did it end up? Well, it ended up basically after that occurred, that political earthquake, I guess you'd call it. Tsunami. uh, Tsunami. There was a a really fundamental shift on the politics of the Board of Supervisors. And so I was in the process a little bit here and there. 
But what the biggest shift was the focus of where housing was going to be in Humboldt County. I think that was probably the biggest shift. And so between 2012 and and now, the fundamental language of the of the plan and sort of where the focus was changed dramatically. And that was basically designed to have housing near where people live now in terms of the towns and where there are services and, and where there's access to employment and those sorts of things. And now the focus on housing was really to allow it basically on all the resource lands. So I mean, the nut of the change is that this plan allowed as principally permitted, meaning that it's allowed on every single parcel in the county virtually that's timber and or ag residential development or basically a residence on every parcel, which the difference between that and what it used to be is that you could have a residence on any one of these parcels so long as it was an accessory or somehow helped timber production or somehow was a part of ag ag production. And so you couldn't just put it on there. Residentials is primary use. And the reason this is such a fundamental change is because it really changes as much as you say you're going to put that residence there in a way that protects that use. And so the language says, well, you can put a residence in these areas, but it can't get in the way of timber production and it can't get in the way of ag production. That sounds good at the beginning of when you put in a residence whatever it may be. But in the long term, it really starts to create a lot of conflict. And those conflicts come with basically who moves into these places in terms of like what their expectations are. Maybe they don't come from a rural place. They don't come from a place where there's timber and or ag. And those uses start to conflict with what their imagined you know lifestyle would be. And so you start to see it's harder to actually do good timber production, and which is a, you know, a part of our landscape or ag production. And then you start to see the pressure to then subdivide these areas because they're becoming used less and less for these types of open space uses and these natural resource uses. And then, of course, there's those jobs that are associated with that in terms of we lose those those ag and timber jobs. But then, you know, there's the environmental impacts to that too, which is the environment is then kind of broken apart. You know, you start seeing impacts to wildlife because humans are all over the place in there. Of course, there's more risk to wildfire. This is certainly an issue now. And this approval came on, you know, a few weeks after the fires in the Santa Rosa area, in the Sonoma County area. And what we see down there is when this type of residential development goes into these resource lands, you really have a higher risk of fire. And then it's also more expensive to fight fires. It's harder to fight fires when there's people dispersed all over the place. And so there's a lot of impacts and those all cost money as well. It's not just environmental impacts. It's not just, you know, more straws into the creeks in terms of water quality and quantity, but also it just costs more to service these areas. And in general, and certainly with our general plan, we don't do development fees in terms of development. So there isn't a there's not a mechanism necessarily to pay for services into these areas. So I mean, in general, that's the biggest shift was this decision to make residences principally permitted on all our resource lands, and sort of that's a sort of a larger landscape issue. And so we actually reduced the number of planned housing units by ten percent, even though most of those are in these resource lands. We probably have maybe thirty, forty thousand now in these. Resource 
resource lands, but each one of those is also more expensive to develop. So when you're talking about affordable housing, it's certainly more expensive to develop a house in a rural area than it is in an area where there are services. Well, and it's far more expensive to buy one. Buy one and and to live there in terms of your expenses, the travel. Yeah, there's a lot of driving Mm -hmm. if you are someone who, you know, relies on going to town for a job or school or your children's school or that sort of thing. There's a lot more driving involved. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, something we talked about on my show last month when we talked about the fires and the community fire planning effort that's coming up is another thing that having people moving into the high fire risk areas, another consequence of that is not only more money to fight fires, more difficult to fight fires, it's far more difficult to do the prescribed burning that's necessary to reduce the fuel loads because people don't want the smoke. Right. You know, and east of Santa Rosa is a state park where they stopped doing prescribed burning 20 years ago because there were so many people living in the area in these large lot, large houses. They fought the smoke from the prescribed burning. So, you know, and then add on top of that the fact that if they're private dirt roads, once they're not in timber production and they're not having a license from the state of California to harvest timber, there's really no road regulations. And so all these wet weather road restrictions go out the window. You know, logging companies aren't allowed to use those roads in the winter because they put so much sediment into the creek, which is terrible for salmon. As soon as there's no timber production on those lands, you have wet weather road use, you know, up and down, up and down the road all winter long. And then, as you said, people are diverting a lot of the streams, you know, so you're basically taking a very heavily impacted watershed from, you know, being logged for decades and then putting residents residential use on top of that and just kind of adding a lot more impacts. Yeah. And that's not to say that, you know, that we should exclude all housing and housing stock from rural areas. I think that there is certainly an important role that is, you know, having people live in these areas because you do need people to be part of those resource lands. I mean, it's important Mm -hmm. that people are connected to both timber and ag lands and have that ability to be in that space. I mean, just like maybe someone who works at an office or at a shop or at a store, you know, might need to be close to where they work in terms of efficiency of how they do things. It's the same for folks that live and work in these areas that are rural areas, and there needs to be opportunity for them too. And Absolutely. So it's uh, it's not absolutist in this regard. It's just that what we have done in this plan is make it so that it's all over the county. And part of the problem is that if you're making it principally permitted again, instead of an accessory to these uses, then what starts to occur, and especially around the more urban areas, say around Arcata or Humboldt Bay, is that the folks, the pressure for those properties is going to basically real estate speculation related to people moving in from out of the area who want a nice view, but yet want to be close to town. Again, you know, having some of that stock is not unreasonable. It's just that this plan sort of just opens it wide. And without real planning, which is what general plans are supposed to do. Also, you know, there are thousands of acres of ag lands that have been converted in terms of land use designation in this plan and prime ag lands to rural residential five acre minimums. So areas where maybe some of the listeners are familiar with sort of the Glendale area and all those open lands that you see out there where the cows are grazing and where they have the festival and the The medieval medieval fair that happens out there and the pumpkin patch and now all those 
those lands are now designated five acre minimums. There's certainly, which could really change that landscape and how we view it in the future of that. And then we have areas in the watersheds, in our view sheds, as if you drive between Eureka and Arcata and you look up into those view sheds there, you know, some of those timber lands have also been converted in terms of land use. Now that means they still have to go through a zoning change and some other things, and they're still going to have to find their water to make things work necessarily. But this is the setting, the direction for that. Yeah, and it's usually a one, it's a one-way street. I mean, you don't take five-acre minimum lands and and change the zoning back into and timberland, s- generally and- speaking. Right. And that wasn't, I made an argument to my other board members that my community, which is the third district, which is in general, is not asking for these things. Which is Arcata, Bayside, Manila. And Neeland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Blue Lake. Blue Lake, for instance. And so, but I'm I'm only one on a board. <laughs> and so I did my best. And That's right. You need how many? You need, you need three. I need three. Three I, votes. I was just one. And, and I think the listeners, maybe if they don't know already from this conversation, I voted no for this plan. I mean, I did not, I did not vote for it. And so I was, I was the dissenting vote. So tell us a little bit more about why you voted no. You voted no because? Well, I voted no. Basically, I mean, the, the main issues had to do with the principally permitting the residential uses on all the timber and ag lands. That is just, I think that was just over the top from my perspective. But then also there didn't seem to be any respect for the city of Arcata's request for the green spaces between Eureka and Arcata. There wasn't any accommodations for the requests that I had made that we not convert these timber and ag lands within the district that I represent to these rural residential land use designations. And just fundamentally, the focus of the plan really was just not on planning, to be quite honest. You know, there was language taken out of the guiding principles that promoted planning or organized development. This is not so great from that perspective. That being said... There is a still a whole list of mitigation measures and implementation measures that we're going to be working on as a county. And within that list are a lot of good things, things that, that are tools for our citizens to be able to move development in good directions and or protect those things that we want to protect. You know, it is a living document. There are opportunities for looking at how things do develop every five years or so. And so so we really need to be active in that regard. And, and people should be aware when they are looking around, like at these hillsides that they see the trees on and they start to see the pock marks of these houses on the hillsides, or they start to see, you know, more development in their ag lands that are, that are around them, that, that these are decisions that are made. These are conscious decisions. You know, we need to be a part of protecting those areas so that, you know, we can have those for our future generations. And it's not just for the aesthetics. It really really is part of a long-term economic sustainability in terms of both timber and ag and being a place that people want to be. Well, if you're just joining us, this is the Eco News Report, and I'm Jennifer Colt with Humboldt Baykeeper. I'm talking with Humboldt County Supervisor Mike Wilson, and we are talking about the general plan update that was just recently adopted and some other big decisions that have been made recently that will affect the future of Humboldt County. And I'm sure a lot of people have been thinking, what about cannabis? Because, you know, when you take a landscape that has been managed for timber or farmland for decades 
and then you break it down into five acre minimums for rural residential, what does that do in terms of allowing cannabis production on those lands? Well, it certainly makes it more likely that you're going to have a lot of smaller cannabis farms, especially in areas where there are some services, especially if there's water and electricity available. Principally permitting 10,000 square foot farms is is something that's it's not too tough to do these days in terms of cannabis. And so that's something that we should be concerned about. We've seen a lot of conversions as well from, from agricultural exclusive land use, conversion from that to ag general, which basically has also has smaller parcel sizes. So whether if you have a parcel that's 100 acres and ag exclusive, a lot of those were converted to ag general, which basically are 20 acre minimums. And so you're going to see the opportunity to exploit those as well. So it, it's interesting because, you know, you spent, we as a community spent 18 years or whatever moving forward with the general plan without this layer of cannabis production and permitting that's just happened in the last year. That's right. Cannabis yeah. was never mentioned in yeah. the general plan update or analyzed at all. Well, there is a discussion of it in the in the agricultural section, but it's not necessarily part of the land use designations per se. And that's all in a separate ordinance or ordinances. And so, yeah, it's not. And in, and we've seen already some of those conflicts starting to come forward. In Fortuna in particular. Fortuna, where there are areas <coughs> where the residential uses that are in ag areas, they're having concerns about a certain kind of agricultural use. And then now we're also having issues with regards to cannabis as an agricultural use and what kind of ag is it? Because some folks don't, you know, we're trying to get this agricultural use into agricultural lands, but then many people don't use the actual soil itself. So then it becomes a threat to prime ag soils, you know, which is something, a resource you want to preserve. And so this has become a new conflict, which is, you know, we're trying to encourage this, what we call agricultural use into ag lands, but it's being done in a more industrial sort of methodology. And so there is definitely an interesting nexus happening there. And certainly it's causing some consternation and trying to figure out how the rules fit, but then also how do we protect the resources we really want to protect and also protect residential areas from being impacted. <clears throat> yeah, and I should mention another thing that's happening tonight is the Humboldt County Planning Commission is going to be reviewing the commercial cannabis ordinance. And I believe they're going to be voting on their recommendation to the Board of Supervisors on that that ordinance. So we've, you know, had legal medical marijuana, and now we're going to have legal commercial cannabis or recreational. And so, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what do you think this is doing to land prices? And, you know, how do we how do we know what it's doing? You know, you hear all these anecdotal stories. And I think it's fair to say that there are some landowners who made requests in the general plan update for these land use changes, and they, they, they pretty much won the lottery, I would have to say, after doing a little research because what I found here is just one example. It took me a half an hour to research this on some real estate websites. 20 acres near Larrabee Valley, if mm -hmm. you know where that is. It's really kind of out in the sticks, kind of near Alder Point. And this property, 20 acres with cultivation permits on file for one acre of outdoor, 22,000 square feet of mixed light, 5,000 square feet of indoor, and a nursery. And it's got some other amenities like a drip irrigation system, water storage, greenhouse space, and a yurt. 
And that property, Ooh, a yurt. 20 acres, mm. is going for $1.85 million. And that was before the land use change. And then compare that with a 20-acre property in Fieldbrook that has no cannabis permits and no house going for $309,000, which, right. you know, Fieldbrook used to be one of the more expensive places to buy property around here. So, mm-hmm. Well, another issue that's really going to be coming up, I believe, is that we're going to start seeing enforcement driving some of these issues, too. So, I mean, for those folks who haven't heard, our code enforcement for the county has been sending letters basically using Google Earth and, and GIS to find land use violations related to cannabis and sending letters to folks to let them know that we found those violations. They're not in the permit process. What's going to happen with that? Basically telling these folks that the fines are starting and you better come in and start talking about to the planning staff. So enforcement is not by the gun anymore so much. It's really by letters. By the helicopter. Or by the, it's really by, you know, satellite imagery and a stamp, (laughs) postal stamp and a letter. And it's basically liens and fines. But what we're going to start seeing is that as even some of these areas try to come into compliance, there's going to be a lot of places that just can't comply. And the damages that have been done on these properties are going to exceed the value of the property itself, especially if it can't generate income. And so one of the issues we're going to be coming up to in the next few years and next probably decades is is the issue of these orphan properties and how will we reintegrate those properties back into the landscape. And so we're going to have to start thinking in some really innovative ways, working with the county and working with state agencies, working with adjacent landowners, working with land trusts to really figure out how that shift is going to occur. Because, you know, we've all heard about these damages of illegal grows out on national park lands or wherever they may be, but now we're going to really see them up close. They're going to be all over the place. It's going to be one of the bigger issues I think we're going to have to deal with in the next decade or so is how to to deal with these orphan properties. So Mike, one of the implementation measures that you mentioned, what that basically means is the county general plan update said there will be a plan for this. And one of the most important ones is called the critical watersheds need to be identified. So tell us a little bit about the critical watershed plans and what's going to happen next with that. Well, basically the county staff and the planning department really need to now are obligated really to review all our watersheds in terms of the critical needs related to water quantity and quality. And those reviews really have to happen before any significant, you know, permits in terms of development can be issued into those watersheds. And so this is kind of a big deal. I mean, this is basically the mitigation measure saying, you know, in order to not have environmental impacts beyond the existing conditions, you need to identify the existing conditions at a watershed scale. And so well, so yeah. if I recall, the 1984 general plan said it would do that, and the county never did that. So how are we going to make sure that happens this time? Well, this is where our activist community and the folks that are really interested in preserving these watersheds and these environments really need to step up and hold people accountable and understand this is the core of what we have in order to do that. And it's not just this. There's a long list of these implementation measures and mitigations that we should really need to start keeping track of and and talking to your supervisors about and keeping track of these processes. 
I wasn't at the hearing because I had to be somewhere else for much of that day. But if I recall, Conrad Fisher from Klamath Riverkeeper actually got the board to approve a timeline on that. Is that right? Well, actually, it's a separate implementation measure that he had comment on. His comments and concerns really resonated with the planning staff in terms of, and really the legal staff in terms of setting a time frame for really evaluating some of these critical watersheds for these issues. And basically the language says the county shall within five years do this. And so this is going to be one of the major goals of the planning department is to really set into motion these evaluations. And so that this is going to be really important. And, and it's definitely a good thing that we see that happening. Okay, I'm going to put on my calendar for the year 2022. No, no, no. You're going to put on your calendar every quarter a call okay. to your county supervisor and planning staff <clears throat> yeah, to ask them how be, it's going. That don't would wait, be a better idea. Don't wait five years. No one should wait till till the time you know yeah. that it's, it's supposed to be done. The next step for the county planning, other than the cannabis ordinance, which seems never ending, but the next step is the local planning. So tell us a little bit about that and how that's going to go. So there was a decision made to separate out the coastal zone from the general plan update process, or at least the decision to move forward. And that had a lot to do with because there just was a lot of differences between the way the Coastal Commission and the Coastal Act is used and implemented compared to how the county was doing all those things on its upland areas. And so the idea is to do those separately. So now we're in a planning process by which we do either we're going to look at the local coastal plan in its entirety for the coast of Humboldt County, or we're going to revisit all the local coastal plans, of which there are half a dozen or so. So we're first we're going to make up our minds which, which way we're going to go with that. But in any case, this is really, really important that folks understand that these are the areas around Humboldt Bay. These are the areas including, you know, Trinidad and Shelter Cove and really those coastal zones that we hold so dear in terms of not just, again, for their cultural and aesthetic values, but really for their economic values as well and how we manage those. And so certainly um, how we deal with the commercial elements of Humboldt Bay in terms of the port and or aquaculture, but also recreational and also hunting and also ag lands. I mean, and understanding how that fits into this too in terms of sea level rise and you know we are certainly on a path to lose some aglands over some amount of time related to sea level rise and we have to make some decisions on how much we fight that or you know stand against sea level rise in terms of levees or those sorts of things and how effective those are considering you know groundwater will rise too there's a lot of planning we have to do and then also on the peninsula there's been a lot of discussion about what is the future of Humboldt County's port development and is it an industrial port or is it more mixed use in terms of we have a lot of these latent industrial lands and how can we use those to you know make our economy work well and be more self sufficient and sustainable and you know we have these areas where there are these infrastructure in terms of water and sewer and, and 
electricity and gas and roads and the past is not you know not a good pattern necessarily for the future in terms of you know large scale industry just based on our isolation but there's a lot of other things people are considering in terms of offshore energy related to renewables including wind and wave there's just aquaculture and even onshore aquaculture meaning you know how can we develop that there's just mixed use industrial being creative and and trying to co-locate businesses i mean we've even on the peninsula now have a have a salt producer for instance and so you know this is going to be for me and i think for a lot of people, this is going to be the fun and creative visioning that we're going to have for our community. It's like the heart of, of where we live in terms of like where we focus our, our business activities and, and a lot of our cultural activities. And so I encourage people to really get involved. This is going to be the fun stuff. This is going to be where, you know, we really get to make the future of Humboldt County. Right. So, and that is next up, really, right? Yep. I mean, what's the timeline? Well, our, our board has made that a priority for the planning department in terms of this is really our next planning effort. There's monies already devoted to that. There's staff already starting to work on it. Is it going to take 18 years? I'm hoping it's going to take 18 months. It's going to be, <laughs> that's my goal. You know, I'm, I plan on really being active in this and I have a few other supervisors that think this is important as well. Well, maybe, that's good. Yeah. Maybe we don't all have the same ideas, but we do understand the need for these planning efforts and really these planning documents to move things forward so that, you know, because stagnation on a planning level is not just bad for business, it's bad for the environment too, really. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, we just basically yeah. spent the last 40 years with a general plan update that didn't consider the fact that COHO were listed under the Endangered Species Act, or right. I could go on and on. Right. But have Having really outdated plans that don't consider current regulations, current environmental protections, that sort of thing, makes all kinds of problems for everybody. It makes problems for developers, too, because it creates conflicts. And so good plans, some people might complain about, oh, the plan is really strict, but then they realize, well, at least I have certainty and understanding of what the rules are, and I'm not going to, it's going to reduce my conflicts. And thus, that certainty is really part of the investment into the infrastructure that we need in order to do good types of development that are good, again, for where we live, for our economy, for housing, for our transportation. I mean, we do rely on all of those things. And and so this kind of planning is really important. Yeah, it doesn't do anybody any good for the county to tell a developer or a property owner, here's how you measure a riparian buffer and then have state regulators say, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to redo it. I mean, that's not helping anyone. So... There are some good things in the current in the general plan update that just got adopted. One of them has to do with riparian and wetland buffers and there's there's quite a few good things about it. You know, it didn't create as much new housing as a lot of us would have liked to see, but if you listen to the Eco News report last week, Tom Wheeler of Epic interviewed the city planners from Eureka, which are doing a general plan update right now, and it was really interesting because they're talking about building new housing according to the the way Eureka was originally built rather than trying to, you know, put suburban regulations on on a what is really more an older urban type landscape of old houses close to the street with not so many parking regulations that you can't add a second unit, you know, because there's not enough parking and that sort of thing. So the city of Eureka general plan update is going on right now. And if people want to get involved in that, this is the time to do that. It's really, it's going to be really interesting. And 
And then next will be the county's local coastal plans Mm -hmm. being updated. And so how do people stay up to date on all these things if they want to follow these things? Well, there's not really any set organization other than the planning departments and the, you know, the councils or for us, the board of supervisors. I advise people to get on the mailing list. It's not too tough to do. If you're in Eureka, certainly getting on the mailing list for the city council, as well as just keeping in touch with the planning departments. I advise social media. Certainly anyone's welcome to follow. I have a Facebook page, Mike Wilson's third district supervisor, but I'm sure Baykeeper has one. Baykeeper has a Facebook page mm-hmm. and an email list. If you want to be added to that, you can send an email to alert at humboldtbaykeeper.org. Check our Facebook page and our website. But, you know, I, I really can't emphasize enough how important these planning processes are because they set things in motion that once people find out about them, oftentimes it's too late. Like right now there is a subdivision in the works in Cotton, right, adjacent to Redwood Fields. And the decision to make that residential was made in 1995. So in another 30 years or so, there are going to be people saying, why are they cutting down all these trees by my house to build a subdivision? Well, that decision was made three weeks ago. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you really need to pay attention to these things if you can. I know I know it's hard, but so many things to pay attention to these days. But oh, So a bit overwhelming. But just like in voting, your, your efforts that you do locally really have a lot more impact than some of your national efforts that you might put into it. So it is it is worth the investment for sure. Really voting and running for office is one of the biggest things anybody can do. I recommend it. <laughs> All right. This has been the Eco News Report. My name is Jennifer Kalt of Humboldt Baykeeper, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I've been speaking with Mike Wilson, County Supervisor for the 3rd District. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the KHSU archives at khsu.org. And we're also now podcasting, so you can subscribe at iTunes. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State. University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks to Fred McLaughlin for engineering. Join us again next week for the Eco News Report.